0: everybody, And welcome to Life TK, the podcast where we talk to women writers, editors, and journalists in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond about the jobs they did when they were in their 20s. My name is Amanda Wojtis, and I'm your host. We're doing housekeeping up top again, so I can remind you that if you haven't already, please follow the podcast on Twitter at Life TK Podcast and on Instagram at Life underscore TK. Subscribe to my newsletter by going to lifetk.com scrolling all the way down to the bottom of the About page and clicking Updates. Okay, now for the good stuff. Vanessa Gregoriatis was one of the first writers I reached out to when I was starting Life TK. She's a contributing editor to the Times Magazine and Vanity Fair, and was for years a staff writer at New York Magazine, which is mainly how I know her from reading that publication. Vanessa is one of those people who, anything she writes, I'm going to read it. Her pieces are full of detail, pop culture, and youth culture references that I love and immediately identify with. And she's funny. She's an expert profiler, probably the best profiler in the country, and one of my favorite pieces from her is her profile of Karl Lagerfeld, which won the National Magazine Award in 2007. The National Magazine Award, by the way, is the highest honor a magazine journalist can win. The piece is called Karl Lagerfeld, Boy Prince of Fashion. So I said that Vanessa was one of those writers who, whatever she writes, I'm going to read it. And lucky for me, she just published a book called Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on Campus. Please go by and read it. And trigger warning, because we're going to be talking about consent and assault here for the first few minutes of the interview. I thought this would be sort of a hard book for me to get into because of the subject, But it's so engrossing, Vanessa spent nearly three years investigating the issue of sexual consent on 20 college campuses across the country, interviewing 120 students and 80 administrators and experts, and weaving together their stories. You might think, like I did, that consent is a pretty black and white area, but this book really challenged me to think about that with all the different stories Vanessa reported. I kicked off this interview a little differently by asking her to talk with me at a coffee house in Brooklyn about the process of writing Blurred Lines. So for those of us who don't ever do like long form, like how do you even begin to tell that story? You did a cover for New York mm-hmm. Magazine. Yeah. And then did you decide like, hey, there's enough material here to do a book? Like how do you even get started on that? Right
1: well I think you know I've been a long form magazine writer for a long time for almost 20 years um, since I graduated college from Wesleyan um, Mm -hmm. in the 90s and to write a book you know it truly is a different very different experience than writing a long form magazine article it's incredibly different than writing tons and tons of short form magazine articles I think one of the kind of sad parts of the loss of long form um is that a lot of young writers are essentially in factories just churning out um short blog copy right and that's not going to get them any nearer really to writing long form and it's not going to definitely it's not going to get them any nearer to writing a book, right? Unless they have that motivation to do that on their own, which some people do. But, you know, other people need the kind of on-the-job experience that Mm -hmm. is not um, as available now. So, um, for me, you know, thinking of a book topic was really challenging. Like, it took me many, many years to try to figure out, like, what is it I really want to write about? At that kind of length, because that's a substantial amount of your life to spend a few years on a book. And what people say is really true, which is a million people said to me if you don't pick a topic that is inherently interesting, you will be like bashing your head against a wall, Mm -hmm. you know, six months into it, going, oh my God, I can't believe I have to think about this. So for me, Um, sexual consent which is really what the book is about was that question like what is consent really what constitutes assault where is the line between non-consensual and consensual you know as a society I think more and more we're recognizing the you know really kind of cliched sexual assault scenarios like a Harvey Weinstein um you know luring women who want jobs from him into his hotel room and coming out of the bathroom and naked in a bathrobe with a bottle of massage lotion and saying give me a massage i think we all recognize how predatory that is yeah but there are many other situations that unfold during people americans early sexual experiences most of which are in college um that are also non-consensual. And I kind of wanted to probe that specific area, you know, the area that does confuse a lot of people, that is in contention, that is a matter of debate.
0: What were some of the challenges in reporting on this? You, One thing I liked about the book a lot is that you were in it and you're talking about how you're relating to these college students that you're interviewing. Mm-hmm.
1: Was that sort of tricky to do? Yeah, I, uh, I didn't really intend to put myself in it, but it's always easier to write something long with a narrative thread, and if you're gonna use yourself, that's just as good as really anybody, you know? And of course, you know your own reactions. Um, I think that, you know, my book is in some ways a Gen Xer looking at millennial sexual mores and sexual culture mm-hmm. and trying to understand it. Um, So that was in itself really challenging. You know, that was a hard kind of place to come from because you're immediately being like, I'm not part of this, really, you know. But this is what I see in it. Um, You know, it's also just really hard to report on sexual assault because you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings because you don't want to misreport what they're telling you. You know, there's nothing worse than having your sexual assault uh, story butchered by a journalist and yeah. written in a way that doesn't reflect your experience at all you know but at the same time a journalist is necessarily like an intermediary you know they're never going to tell the story that, that that subject really wants to have told it's always right. going to be slightly different you know True. so negotiating that was really hard
0: were you worried about um I think it would be hard to, like, synthesize someone's story in, mm-hmm. like, a paragraph or two mm-hmm. or a page or two. Like, how did you kind of navigate that just from...
1: Yeah. Yeah, because there's a lot of stories in the book that are told right. very in a very, like, kind of truncated form, right. right? They're they're just there kind of to make a point. Yeah. Um, I mean, I did the best I could in those kinds of situations to give a little background mm-hmm. and then kind of just quickly pick up you know okay this is what it I felt that was interesting here and then move on from it you know yeah yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: in some ways I'm kind of glad that our previous call (laughs) it didn't work out so here's the backstory for any of you who think I'm a stellar reporter I called Vanessa a week before this to do the interview and my iPhone 5 would not record the call and I wanted to die and I had to ask her to reschedule and did I mention I wanted to die Because we're talking a couple of days after the, like, hashtag MeToo campaign is blowing up all over social. And I was talking to a friend this morning, and I was like, we were both like, we can't quite articulate why it's sort of, like, irking us a little bit. And I think on the ride over here, I was thinking more about it, and I think it's almost, it's kind of what the, it's the opposite of what you did in this book, which is that it's, like, very general and a lot of people are chiming in, but I think it sort of loses the nuance mm. in what you did so well was capturing um, different experiences, but like very detailed. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if you have any, have you been kind of following that?
1: Yeah, I have been following it. I mean, look, it's really the situation with women and speaking out around this is really complicated. Yeah. You know, um, first of all, It's great that people feel that they can speak out, you know, and that certainly is changing the situation as on the ground, as we know it right now. Like, in terms of what guys are thinking about today, just today, Mm -hmm. October, whatever, 2017, there are more guys today probably thinking about sexual assault than any other day, you know, other than when the Harvey Weinstein story first broke, right, because of the Me Too hashtag I think it's also true that, you know, in order to create some change and create new rules and boundaries and a new kind of sexual ethic, we have to be more specific about what it is that women are so offended by. And I'm not talking about, like, sexual harassment in the workplace, which we all kind of know is offensive. Or even street harassment, which, you know, I think some light has been thrown on that. Mm -hmm. you know, specifically, I'm talking about sexual assault and what it is that's happening in an environment like college that's making women so unhappy, even if it doesn't cue to the kind of Harvey Weinstein precepts of this guy's a serial predator, right, Right? Yeah. who has this perversion and just keeps doing it to all these different women, you know, because there's something else out there that's not just that, that women are speaking to, right. you know?
0: Yeah. Okay, like I said, please go out and buy Blared Lines, give it to a friend to read. It's masterfully reported, and you will not regret spending time with it. It was definitely the smartest book I read in 2017. On to what Vanessa was up to in her 20s. What were you up to in your 20s? In the press packet, I read that you said a series of random events landed you a job at New York Magazine. You know,
1: I went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut, mm-hmm. which is a really kind of progressive school. Um. Like very much like UC Santa Cruz or Bard or Evergreen, something like that. And um, when I graduated, I didn't know what I was going to do. I really had no idea. I was acting through a lot of college um, in musical theater and different plays. And I thought like, well, maybe I'll be an actress or people always have told me I was a great writer. Maybe I should be a writer. Um maybe I'll be I like to travel maybe I'll be a (laughs) travel writer for Fromers or maybe I should go to anthropology graduate school like I really had absolutely no idea and then I hit upon this idea oh I could work in a magazine and I never even read magazines growing up I barely you know was aware of anything except for like Vogue you know um the New Yorker um, I did read newspapers and my parents were newshounds and I was into, like, politics and learning about stuff through the newspaper. But um, I ended up getting an internship at New York Magazine and I stayed for one day because it was so awful. Uh, I thought it was so dumb. They had me, like, cutting um, the gossip column out of the New York post and the daily news and then like putting it in a binder Mm -hmm. like gluing it onto pages and putting it in binder so that they could keep it for reference for their regular gossip column you know because this was like pre-internet so you had to do things like cut things out (laughs) and put them in a binder 1996 okay so you know and I just said like no this is dumb I'm not gonna do this so I left and I started to um I was reading scripts for a film company um you know you get like 150 to read a script and do coverage basically give like a two-page you know report on whether you thought the script was good and if you know it should be pushed up to the next level of somebody who was like a little (laughs) bit higher paying to see if the film company was interested in producing it um so that was my job and um, then I bumped into a woman who worked at New York Magazine on the subway. And she said, oh my God, you know, I was going to call you because we just got a job. And do you want to come in and interview? And I said, oh, well, okay, real job, not like a free internship. Okay, well, maybe that I would do that. Yeah. So I went in and I got hired like on the spot. Um, I think I started like two days later. Um, and that was it. And then I stayed there for, you know, 18 years or something crazy.
0: Do you recall any stories that you were assigned or that you wrote in your 20s that were particularly like, you know, either like teaching moments or yeah. the one that you were just like so over the moon with? What right. was kind of that like, that first one where you felt like, yeah, I'm hitting my stride?
1: Well okay so I started so I was an assistant I was answering okay. the phones and then I would write little pieces like for the best of New York like best pizza something like that um and then I got the job of doing the classical music listings mm-hmm. and then and I had to pick the party photos um from like all the premieres and openings of boutiques etc from around the city and then I also had to write like 500 words of copy to go along with those party photos like a kind of like you know New York Times Sunday styles level of copy right just like this is who was there it was interesting because of x this social trend was clear by the footwear these people were wearing whatever you know um so that was my kind of junior job and It was a really cool job because I got to go to every party in New York. Mm -hmm. I was let in every place. Um, Every, like, Harvey Weinstein, Miramax premiere, you know, was definitely, (laughs) like, one of those journalists that they're talking about. All these journalists. He was just nice to them. They did his bidding. Like, I don't know if I did his bidding, but I was definitely, like, oh, yeah. I met him many times. I mean, I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, he never paid me for anything. I never got, like, a, I never got one of my stories developed by him yeah. so that I would write nice things about him in a magazine. Right. But um, he definitely treated reporters nicely um, and treated them as equals, um, which is a lot more than you can say for a lot of other people who are involved in the film business, you know, because the film business really is pretty allergic. To Mm -hmm. journalists and really despises in some ways journalists Um, so then I ended up I saw these girls who were women who were like 20 let's say five or six and I was like 25 or six um, at the doors of all of these parties and they were holding these clipboards and they had like little kind of like ear mics and they would tell me if I could go into the party or not and I was like who are these people this is just fascinating who are these women with these clipboards they're publicists oh my god this is so interesting and so like in the most naive fashion I was like I think I'm gonna write a story about these people with these clipboards (laughs) you know yeah and so I wrote this story called power girls that was about basically like the takeover of New York publicity by mm-hmm. a really young group of publicists who were kind of like I mean look it's not that different than what's happening today where there are like influencers yeah. and then there's the people who round up the influencers and then start like a little company of influencers mm-hmm. right and like publicists are, were essentially paid influencers they were just paid to you know, nobody cared about the publicists back then everybody cared about the celebrities. So right. they were paid to give the handbags to the celebrities and the socialites. Um, and I guess you could say any other random hip person who could be called an influencer, you know, and then get a picture of that person and make sure it got put in like Vogue right. or L or someplace where other people could be like, oh, that girl's so pretty and she's carrying that coach handbag. I wish I had a coach handbag, right? Yeah. So it's the same game that's being played today. It's just gone through a lot of iterations. And now, you know, you don't have to be within one of these big, like, kind of companies to to do it. So I uh, basically, like, wrote that story. Uh, It was a huge hit. Everybody thought it was very funny. I made it very, like, Tom Wolfe. So Mm -hmm. it was, like, very vivid and entertaining. And, um, like, a million other people offered me jobs like from other other magazines. People offered me jobs. So I essentially got to, like, write my ticket into writing at New York Magazine because I just said, like, okay, well, I'll stay here. And they said, what do you want? And I said, I never want to come to this office. I just (laughs) want to be a writer. I just don't want to have to come in here and, like, answer phones and, like, do classical music listings and, like, deal with a photographer and just, like, come into this office with, like, my coffee every day. Like, I just don't want to do it anymore, you know? And so then I've basically been doing the same thing since then. (laughs) There hasn't been a lot of movement.
0: It sounds great. I read an interview you gave to The Daily Beast Mm -hmm. where you said you you described yourself as an aggressive reporter and someone who doesn't stop until she gets the job done and that's definitely been a theme in this podcast mm-hmm. It's like people who even when they're told no are just like almost borders on like anger they're like no fuck you I'm just going to keep doing it mm-hmm. would you say that that's kind of you and that's how
1: I'm really not like that I feel like yeah. <laughs> I was just trying to like assert my bona fides because somebody was saying I was a bad reporter so I was like no 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 no, no. I'm a good reporter, you know. But um, I am not actually really one of those people who, like, gets off on being told no. Um, Really? I actually get, like, really kind of upset and hurt about it and, like, slink away. But I am, like, a workaholic. And I research things to death. And I Mm -hmm. report things to death. And I'll call like, this person, and then the next person, and then the next person, and, like, waste tons and tons of time hunting and, like, figuring out, like, tiny little fact details, you know? But in terms of, like, you know, I don't, like, call myself an investigative reporter, even though I kind of could, because I do know how to do that. Um, And I do use those skills in some of my stories. But, like, really, that's very far from, you know, the kind of work that I enjoy doing, which is like very observational Mm -hmm. reporting. Like, I would just love as a reporter to just be invisible and be able to just, like, eavesdrop on any conversation and, you know, get into any phone call and just listen in and, you know, you're right there are some people who you know wake up in the morning and they get their coffee and they like some reporters and they have a list of like you know 30 numbers they're important people they're about to call for their article and they just can't like wait to get to it that is not me at all I mean I will put that off I will put those calls off all day if yeah. I can you know yeah.
0: That's interesting. Well, it's good to know that you can still be really successful without having. Because women would tell me that, and I'm like, I am not. Well, super you have like to be. Either.
1: You have to be some kind of aggressive. Yeah. Like even if it's not, that you have to be aggressive with your phone calls. Mm-hmm. You have to be aggressive with like. My whole thing is like protecting my time. Yeah. And making sure that like I get really good time with the person that I'm Mm -hmm. interviewing and they're really ready to do the interview and um, they're like enthusiastic and excited about the questions and making sure the questions are kind of different so they're not the same ones they've heard and like um, picking up all the kind of atmospheric details that I can while the interview is going on. Like, I mean, I have a whole bag of tricks that are related to, like, making sure the story doesn't slip through my hands. Yeah. But it's just the phone calling part of it is just not... That's That one is not really me. Yeah. 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 That one is not really me.
0: Do you have any other interviewing tips or tricks?
1: I mean, my number one trick is just to have... Questions that other people don't have. Like mm-hmm. there's nothing worse um, for somebody who's being interviewed than like just having to answer the same batch of questions but also, you know, kind of know when to back off because I think that some people get too aggressive with their questioning and it actually makes people shut down. Yeah, You know, you're there to have like, a, you're going to get many more bees with honey than you are the other way.
0: What would you say for you was sort of the biggest challenge of your 20s? I feel like when I think about 90s media compared to (laughs) to today, I would much rather feel like you lived...
1: We lived such nice times. lives. Yeah, yeah, it was right? so great. We got paid so much money, and yeah. we like hung out, and we just did our work, and it was like so easy. We only had to write like one thousand word article a week or something. <laughs> and
0: like No one gave a shit about video. I know. Like, no one was trying to get you to pivot to video.
1: And nobody was pivoting to video. Did you, and you ever? Nobody was talking to... about podcasts. And... I do
0: like podcasts. Yeah. Video. I <laughs> No, like never. No, but it wasn't like,
1: hey, can you do these six extra things on top of the article? Yeah. Hey, could you just blog about this same topic? Can you just plus the article? Until you die? Yeah, right.
0: My favorite story about the glory days of magazines came from my last job when an editor told me that when Photoshop first started being used in the early nineties, the art director wanted to try it out just to see what all the hype was about and spent thousands of dollars photoshopping a second potato on the cover of the magazine. What the actual, why couldn't I have graduated in the late 80s?
1: So, I don't know. I mean, I I definitely think, I mean, everybody, I think, agrees that the high point for magazines in terms of, like, just the fatness of the business yeah. and people living, like, high off the hog was that kind of, like, late 90s, early 2000s period where... There was a crash in the tech world. It wasn't like totally clear that tech was going to win. And the advertising rates were really, really, really high. Yeah. And, um, you know, magazines really mattered. Yeah. And they were the only way to get your message out, really. So, there, you know, I, I don't think magazines would be dying if social media hadn't started. I think it's social media that actually killed magazines. I think the blogging killed the newspapers. But the social media is really delivering almost the same thing that magazines have. They're delivering, like, photos, social trends. Mm. Hey, here's this thing. Hey, look, it's cool. Hey, here's a celebrity who's doing it, too. Oh, my God, here's a funny, weird thing. Right. You know, they're, like, kind of just delivering the same. Here's a charticle. Like, same thing that we were delivering yeah. in magazines. So it makes it so hard to compete. And the phone is just really hard for long-form nonfiction. Unless it's incredibly well-written and feels like fiction becomes really hard to read on the phone. It's just like too... I don't know. I'm also of a different generation, but to me, I find that like strains my brain to read a few long-form articles on my phone, like New Yorker-level articles on my phone. Uh, I mean, I would do maybe one and then be like, that was was good for a while. I'm done with that for a while. Um, So, you know, the medium is the message. Mm -hmm. So like this is a real problem and it's becoming more and more of a problem every day that goes on, you know, we are learning how, what a deep, deep hole magazines are in. I mean, now it basically it seems to me like magazines are just chasing each other down the hill. Like, it's yeah. like, how fast can we run to destroy our product? Like this yeah. notion of just like endless content stream, mm-hmm. right? Like put up a new article, like every. 10 minutes, five minutes, whatever, and just hope that one of them goes viral. I mean, that has to be the business plan. And that is exhausting everybody, you know, and it's not good for the people who are trying to promote stuff because unless you are Angelina Jolie, like whoever that article is being written about is not seeing a big return on the amount of time that they, they put in that article to make it happen. Yeah, You know, and that's, more than anything the real problem is that publicists do control this whole space they do control the whole lifestyle space other than you know the influencers who are essentially going who are essentially just becoming publicists they're almost like the influencers are like spokesmodels right you know but like you know when It used to be that if you were getting a story in Rolling Stone, Mm -hmm. um, even if it was an inside story, like a subject was willing to spend a great deal of time, maybe a few hours with the person, you know, I'm talking about an inside one-page story. Okay. For a cover story, you were definitely getting two to three days with yeah. that person. Which was honestly sometimes more time than I even really wanted. I was like, I don't even really want to be with this person for three days, you know? But that was just always the way it was. Like, Anyway, whatever. You get the point. There yeah. the, was just like, you know, I interviewed Jennifer Lopez for like the cover of Allure. I think I spent three hours with her. I think I interviewed Mariah Carey for like allure and maybe spent four hours with her um just like in her hotel suite like chillaxing you know i mean those kinds of stories now i mean i would be shocked if you get over 45 minutes right like really why what is the story is there even a story that goes with those photos and and, like who the fuck reads it like so i think that the publicist kind of like um you know mathematical equation has started to be like oh wait a second yeah like we don't really need these stories the way that we did when glossy magazines were dominant and they actually the magazines themselves haven't figured out a way to get the articles to really go viral You know like they're just basically reliant upon the whim of the internet
0: what would you say was like the biggest triumph of your 20s like what or maybe like what was the best lesson you learned
1: god what lesson did I I learned a lot of (laughs) I I learned the hard way that um, I was wasting my time on doing a lot of stuff. I mean, I don't know. I would just say, like, as somebody who now has two kids, like, my lesson looking back at my 20s is that, like, I wasted a lot of time that I didn't need to waste with being, like, A, just being like, should I go to this yoga class or should I go to that yoga class? Like, am I going to have brunch here? okay, like I guess I'll just have brunch. And then I'll go home and I'll like start this book, but I don't really like this book, so maybe I won't finish it. I'll just go for a walk. Like, okay, I'm gonna like go for a walk, I'm listening to music, now I'm gonna talk to my friend on the phone for like 45 minutes about like what happened last night with her date, I'm gonna go home, you know, like give myself like a pedicure, and then I'm gonna take like a shower, And maybe I'll try to read that book again, but I still didn't really (laughs) like it. Now I'll be like, you know, part of the paper, and now I'm ready to go out. And that's a weekend. Okay, I'm describing a day when I didn't actually work, because I definitely did work other times, but like as a magazine writer, you could just assume I like worked, there was like three hours of work in there, not like a full day of work. and I think it's really hard now as, like, a mom of, you know, I have a one-and-a-half-year-old and a five-and-a-half-year-old. And, like, I was up at 7 o'clock this morning. You know, I, like, raced to the office to, like, do six things that I needed to do. Now I'm talking to you. It's, like, 1 o'clock. I'm going to go home. I have to pick up my daughter from school. Yeah. And, you know, this and this and this and this. And then I'm going to see a play tonight Um, And, like, I'll probably get home at, like, 10 o'clock and, like, fall into bed so exhausted and wake up at 7 in the morning with, like, screaming infants, you know, like, clustered around and do it all over again. And I, I mean, everybody who I am friends with who, like, spent their 20s basically kind of, like, lollygagging and partying the way that I did kind of says, like, but who is also ambitious is, like, What the hell was I doing? Like, I could have won, like, a Nobel Prize. And instead, I was, like, wandering through the park, like, wondering what I was doing. Like, it was just, there was too long of a period of, like, just kind of wondering and hanging out. And, like, oh, maybe, you know, like, and I think that, you know, I was able to do that because I did have this job at New York Magazine and because you didn't have to be like such a crazy gangster, like, operator to have a freelance career back then. You could just, like, be a person who knew how to write and just have a job, Um, you know. And then, you know, of course, like, I would go after stories and there were things that I worked really hard on. I'm not, you know, I I mean, I shouldn't pretend that that never happened. But, um, you know... I, I, I do think that because um, lots of urban women don't have their kids in their 20s anymore um, there's kind of a like a, a, like for people who are specifically writers and journalists you know this, there's kind of like a length of time that we all feel it's acceptable to just like kind of meander and hope that work pans out and it's can take all the way through your 20s to do that and you know unfortunately journalism is a kind of thing where it may not pan out like, yeah. it may not actually work out for you. And the good news is, like, if you're a good journalist, you can basically make a transition to any other field because you have good communication skills, you're a people person, you know how to write, you know, you have your producer, you know how to, like, make things kind of, like, happen enough that you you're can like write an article about yeah. it. You're a connector. Yeah. You're some sort of maven. You probably have some, you know, knowledge, plus you can, like, make sh- small talk with anybody. Talker, yeah. Know. Like, I mean, small Consul being able yourself. to make... Yeah. Exactly. Being able to make small talk and draw people out at a, you know, cocktail party is a, a lot, goes a long way to getting hired in a different field. But I don't know. I think that, you know, there's lots of women who will go from college to law school and then get a job at like a major firm or work in a district attorney's office and they kind of wake up at 32 and are like oh my god I just killed myself for the last 10 years you know I definitely did not have that experience <laughs> I was like <laughs> definitely didn't I don't even think I got serious about writing until I was like in my 30s Really. You know? well I was so nervous that anything that I would say something wrong or that people didn't like what I was saying or that I would look stupid and like I had such a hard time developing my voice and you know it's very different now because like back then you could really write really slowly and worry about every sentence and make everything totally perfect um now it's like you have to be like a like a like a belly dancer or something. You just like constantly be shaking it and constantly showing off what you have. And so I think like it's almost impossible to survive now as a writer if you're not actually a good writer because you have to do so much writing, you know. Yeah, you're writing
0: like a lot of things
1: Totally, and you have to be funny. I mean, you have to be on Twitter. I mean, I was saying to a friend of mine who's really got a great Twitter account, I was like, could you be my ghost writer on Twitter? (laughs) Like so that like I can promote my book because you're so funny I just don't almost don't know how to do this like it takes me either like a tweet just like comes to you and you're like haha that's so funny and you write it yeah. down or it's like <laughs> it takes like a while yeah. you know you're like sitting there like okay well, I could say it this way I could say it that way I mean I don't have time for this yeah. like kids to pick up at school yeah, you know yeah. I'm not worried about like what my tweet is gonna be like I'm trying yeah. to you know trying to like make my life work yeah. um
0: that's something I've really had to like struggle with for this podcast I'm for I'm just really bad at social media like I mm-hmm. worked, I worked in print for yeah way too long um, and I was talking to my husband who's like better at it and I was like how do I get people to follow this fucking podcast because I tried everything and he's like you just have to keep you have to churn out just constant stuff and that's how people sort of like organically find you and follow you and I was like that sounds horrible i'm just gonna hire someone to do this yeah me. like that's more that's a skill i've developed in my 20s Is like no recognizing when i cannot do something and just need to like bring someone else into the fold
1: like, right no i need to do that too tell me when you find that person I'm, yeah, i have I, I have some job for him okay. <laughs> yeah did you hear that vanessa and i are hiring no i mean look it's like i don't know what to say i mean so i wrote this book Right. And then I have to figure out like how can I promote it? And how can you really promote it? Like, I don't know, it's a book. It's not the easiest thing to promote. It's not like a nice tank top. Like it's also a book about sexual assault, which is particularly not what like everybody is desperate to pick a book up about. But you know, there are friends of mine who are like, you need to get this thing called Boostagram, and you need to like follow everybody, and if you follow everybody, then everybody follow you back, and you retweet the people, and yes. a just like focused way, like to sit down and like like everything and retweet everything, yeah. and I'm just like, again, I'm like, I have kids to pick up at right, school, right. like. I just came back from LA and San Francisco yeah. and I granted, I was hanging out with people who work in the fashion world, okay. but it was just like influencer, 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 influencer. Like this is who you need to reach and this is how you do it. And, da, 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 da. and I was like, are there book influencers? And they kind of looked at me like just blankly. And I was like, okay, I'm going to take that as a no, <laughs> like <laughs> you know. but this kind of issue of, Who are the people who are, you know, you can with ten thousand followers, you can now like be somebody who other people want to reach, and like you have you have influence, right? Right. And how do you get to that point? Um, Obviously, being really funny has something to do with it. Having some sort of purchase in another career has something to do with it. but it also probably has a lot to do with log rolling and like saying that you like this thing and then somebody else says i like this thing yeah but like you know it's hard because on one hand i'm like yo that's gross on the other hand like i had a couple of friends who had books come out the same time as me and they said like okay you post our books we post your books and that was great like because. I like them they're great they deserve as much like I mean I can see where it'd be crazy if there were we're like a hundred books and I have to go promote a hundred people's books but like when you're talking about a few books of your friends like why of course why wouldn't I want to help those people and I was talking to somebody the other day who uh, is married to somebody who's a debut novelist and I was like, well, this is what I think she needs to do. Because he was like, well, she doesn't know anybody. Da, da, da. And I was like, she needs to get on her social media accounts. He was like, she doesn't have social media accounts. And I was like, she better start them. Yeah. And she needs to write, like, paragraph about some books that are coming out that she likes. Like, get ten books that have come out over the last year that are similar-ish to her book. Right. And write like a really good nuanced analysis of that book and post it on her Facebook and tag the author in it. And he was like, she doesn't want to do that. Like she hates Facebook and it just looks so obvious. She's just trying to suck up to that person. And I was like, no. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Everybody appreciates it. And yeah, you're telling me this woman is a with, great yeah. writer so she can do a little review mm-hmm. of this book and make it sound really great and show off her writing skills in the process. I mean, if for anybody who's a debut like author, I would say get on that. Like, yeah. immediately go take a picture of the book, put it on your Instagram account with a nice long caption of you describing what it is. And those authors who you do that for will be so appreciative of it and it's only good for you because it shows that like you're a good writer and you have good taste and like yeah you don't do it for books that you think are shitty you only do it for books that you think are good so I feel like that part of it that you know I'm allergic to that too I think it's gross too but I also think like we're in a world now where like it is so doggy dog and it is so hard to get heard above the noise that you gotta just use whatever you can or just like you know people who I know who are yeah. like social media influencers or whatever who are people who are mostly from the magazine world who now like are like this is my fabulous life yeah. and I'm trying to make money from it and I don't know how you're doing it but whatever or um, We'll put it in their moments or whatever it's called. Yeah, you're like
0: Insta story. The Insta yeah, story, right? That's great. So
1: doesn't have to live on their page forever. Right. It's just like in the story. Some people saw it. They did their jobs, you yeah. know. Like, so. I mean, I I also want to try to harness that stuff because I want people to read my book, you know, because yeah. I'm proud of it and I think it's good and I want people to actually read it and it's really hard to get people to buy a book unless it you know just blows up and then becomes like a fait accompli basically right. um so yeah so anyway back to what we were saying about how yes work harder lean in you know oh I mean gosh. look that that's the <laughs> sad thing is is that Sheryl Sandberg got so crucified but like what she was trying to say was not bad like You should lean in. You should lean into your career because you lean in to everything else. So there's no reason not to do that. And particularly, like, if you're going to end up having your kids in your late 30s or mid 30s or even your early 40s. I mean, I just had a kid at 42. Like, I had my first kid, I think I was 39 when she was born. And that was not by choice, you know. I did get married a little, not that late, but I got married at 30. Three, yeah, and nice. then I just couldn't get pregnant you know yeah. um so it wasn't like I didn't want to have I mean I wanted to have a kid at like 35 but I just couldn't get pregnant and then went through like you know the IVF hell and all yeah. of that and I just think like so many women are doing that now so many women are waiting so long to have their kids because te- you know we have the technology now not everybody gets a kid in the end which is the really scary part is like it's a little bit of a russian roulette um but if you're willing to take that risk you can really have a whole life without a kid um you know whatever i'm saying this like everybody wants kids obviously some people don't yeah. but like you know I'm just trying to say that it's not as though like a lot of our ideas about how hard somebody should work and how important somebody's career should be are kind of based off like an old model of well you're gonna kind of quit when you have a kid anyway aren't you you're gonna take at least a couple years off and then yeah. you're gonna come back part-time and so you were that corporate lawyer who worked really hard to 32 then you had your kids then you you know like you had a problem with your second pregnancy and And now you're 36 and like okay your kids are like two years old and like now you're 38 and you decide you're gonna work but you're not gonna go back to the firm so you're just gonna like do some part-time contract work from home like 20 hours a week you know maybe you'll go back to the firm at 50 or maybe you won't at all like I don't think that that is gonna be the case almost out of financial necessity for a lot of people of young women who are in their 20s today I think they're gonna keep working you know
0: yeah oh yeah my generation like has to
1: right so if you're gonna keep working then you know actually your 20s become incredibly critical you know that's
0: what I think too um the other thing I think that's different about maybe my generation is that the whole like IVF thing that's really expensive and like there's just i mean we have to hustle like so mm-hmm. incredibly hard That one thing i've been thinking about is like what's more cost efficient right now like leaning into the career really going for it hoping that something happens Cause right it's, like so like yeah that's another thing like luck like this year i feel like all i want to do is work i feel like the fuck of your 20s right now is like I feel like no one actually wants me to work because, like, there are just so many, like, layoffs and, like, not enough opportunities. The economy sucks. So it's, like, it's almost, like, lean into this thing where I don't even feel like I'm wanted or like valued, yeah you know yeah like I don't know if that was like different in the 90s when you were kind of well I think people out. weren't
1: getting laid off all the time yeah. and I think you're probably in the wrong business at this point
0: did I mention I just took a job at another magazine like I think yeah. at
1: this point you have to just be like the magazine business is done and I'm going to do something different <laughs> yeah. and whether that is working at BuzzFeed
0: yeah BuzzFeed turned me down
1: or working at like a restaurant I have no idea you know like I don't know I don't know I mean it depends like what you like really want to accomplish I think you're right that like look I mean the problem with okay so first of all yes IVF is very expensive but it's also true that IVF can be covered by insurance so it's up to you and the women that you know to insist to your employers that they cover IVF. Like that is completely something that they can do. And um, you know, it's up to each employer, whether they're gonna do it or not. So I think that if women band together and start demanding this from employers there may be some change because apparently they don't mind actually giving it in some cases because so few people actually end up using it and it's a benefit that draws in employees because employees are excited to hear that you have it so um and remember like most people don't need more than one or two IVF cycles right so it's not like some crazy expensive procedure that goes on forever for everybody um so I think that that's part of it I think that's important to know but I also think you know the thing about when to have your kids is really hard because yes there's you know there's an argument that was made by a woman named Sylvia Ann Hewlett who was kind of like I'm trying to think of when this is it was like kind of in the sex in the city era and she um i think she was an economist at princeton and she put forth this argument that everybody kind of argued about and said she was wrong about which was don't have your kids in your 30s have your kids at 22 because if you have your kids or 25 because you have your kids then Then you can get them up and out into school, you know, because once your kid hits, like, five or six, you can basically go back to real life. Right. So let's say you have, like, two kids, okay, eight years, something like that. Um, and then just go into the workforce and have an uninterrupted career from basic for basically 32 or 33 through until you retire, and that will actually create a lot more power and a lot more income for you um, because you won't have this kind of uh, you know off track off ramp or whatever they call it that that a lot of working women take. Yeah. Um, and then they try to get back on, and they find they can't merge as quickly as they thought, right? So I think that um, that's, like, not going to happen because nobody wants to marry some guy they met like, <laughs> 24 because guys are really just yeah. children at that age. Yeah. Um, I think that the, you know... I wish I had been able to get pregnant at like 34 or 35 because I think that's probably more ideal because as you start to get towards 40, yes, it's much riskier. You might not end up with a kid, which would be a huge bummer. Um, And you then are like old, you know, like I'm tired. Like I'm really exhausted. I just don't have that much energy. I'm just like really tired, you know, I have these children. And so I just think it would be nice to be a little bit younger. I mean, look, when I – my My son is going to graduate college. I'm going to be like 60 something years old when he graduates high school, you know? So, um, so anyway, I don't think there's easy answers to any of that, but I do think that, you know, somebody said to me this weekend, like, you can't be in business with people who are broke. Because we were talking about magazines, and it's like, it's kind of <laughs> true. Like you're trying to like be in business with people who have no money. It's like yeah. not a good like strategy. Yeah.
0: Like I know, don't have any money. Yeah, I know. know. Oh, is there something that you're reading or someone you're following now that I should be reading? Anything
1: okay, you're really I will about? plug my friend's book. Oh yeah, not, She was not my friend before I read her book, but I love this book so much. And since we're talking about um, life in your twenties, yeah. you feel that it's appropriate. Okay. So there's this woman. Her name is Claire Dieterer, and she lives in Seattle, okay. um, in Bainbridge Island or something like that. And she um, wrote a book, and it's called Love and Trouble. And okay. it's she's older than me. Um, I think she's in her late 40s or early 50s, and it's basically like she goes back to her journals of being a teenager and in her 20s and she's like i'm looking for my younger self here like where is my younger self and so she reads all of these journals and talks it's her memoir of her young life um and she had like you know a pretty like bad like you know just kind of living on the edge but like fairly normal kind of life it's really good i really like that yeah yeah cool
0: I want to thank Vanessa Gregoriadis so much for talking to me. Please go buy her book, Blurred Lines. It's fascinating, so smart, so well-reported. I know you're going to like it as much as I did. Okay, that's it. See you next time.